judges uh, raised up by God because God's people, apparently then and now, needed some reminders. And the judges were, uh, they weren't judicial as we think of judges. They were kind of mini saviors, mini deliverers, because Israel had this terrible tendency to rebel against God, experience the consequences of it, and then cry out to him. And he, being God, would restore Israel through the vehicle of one of these judges. We've spoke of several already. We spent uh, uh, two sessions speaking about one named Gideon. We'll spend tonight speaking about him again because Judges spends more time with Gideon than any other. Uh, three chapters are devoted to him. I'm fascinated by him because he, though is an outstanding person, what a flawed individual. And I'm comfortable with that because I am too. And I get to see that God uses even flawed individuals like you and I to do wonderful things for his glory. That's what happened through Gideon. And so the last time we were together, we saw that Gideon was used by God to bring to Israel a massive victory over a massive opposing army, the Midianites. The Israelites were so outnumbered, there's no way they could take credit for the victory that God gave them through Gideon. And now, hot on the heels of the victory, how does he do? He handled adversity in a certain way. How is he going to handle success? And so we're going to see in chapter 8, Gideon faces three challenges or tests in the latter part of his life, and we could learn from it. We could see, did he finish well? You see for yourself as we embark in the study of Judges, now chapter 8. Here's what it says, verse 1. The men of Ephraim, that's one of the tribes of Israel, said to him, Gideon, remember, this is right after a spiritual high victory over the Midianites. They said to him, what is this thing you've done to us? Not calling us when you went to fight against Midian. And they contended with him vigorously. Here's the first challenge Gideon, the leader, faced. After winning victory over the Midianites, one would think everyone would rejoice, maybe even pat him on the back, even though the victory was God's and not his, still you would think the response would be, Gideon, thank you for serving. Thank you for stepping up. Thank you for being faithful. No, that didn't happen at all. It was their pride and jealousy that got the best of them. Ephraim thought more of themselves than they should have because historically they've always been Oh, preeminent and prominent as influencers in Israel. In fact, the tabernacle of God, this was before there was a temple. The tabernacle was housed in a place called Shiloh. Some of you have been there. Uh, and Shiloh is in the territory of Ephraim. And so they laid claim to this. And so they were the largest of all tribes at this point, And they were... Uh, hitherto quite influential, and now they're getting their feelings hurt because they don't think they got enough play, enough participation in the, in the victory. And so now instead of uh, supporting and uh, congratulating Gideon, they dump on him. This seems to be the mark of leadership. If you're a leader in any sense, 
really, even in your own family, in church or in the workplace, I'm afraid it's oftentimes a lonely road, and you're going to get hit uh, here sometimes by those you least expected. I mean, you expect the Midianites, outside adversaries, to oppose Gideon, but these are the brethren. And look what they do to Gideon at this particular uh, time. And so often I have found adult criticism is a way of crying. <laughs> if you think of it that way, when you receive it, you won't be as defensive. Uh, uh, adult complaining and criticism is an adult way of crying. And what, are they, what is the critic crying out for? It's for attention, just like a child does. And so um, in my experience, and being in the ministry for a number of years and blowing it many, many times, I've learned when that happens, if criticism and complaint is in fact a cry for attention, give it. <laughs> give it to the person. Let me illustrate. I was an interim pastor of a church for a number of months many years ago, before you were born. Okay, not that many, but still, uh, uh, many years ago. And the church had a project to rededicate its worship area. They were a debt-free church, just as we have the good fortune of being. And so the money to do the redecorating was already there. There was no question about going in debt to rededicate the worship center. It was a project. Money was contributed to it. And the good people of the church were going to do a good deal of the work themselves. On a particular Sunday, I wanted to compliment everybody for their participation in the program, and I did this. At the end of the service, a man came over to me. It was a more traditional church, and there was a receiving line where you, you, you stay in line. People come by, shake your hand. They say, that was a wonderful sermon, you know, and they didn't even listen to it. I know that, but, but that's just something to say. And so this man is there, and I'm expecting I'm going to get the same thing. And he said, you, you don't really believe what you said, did you? This is in full earshot of everybody. It was an older man. I said, as far as I could tell, sir, yes, I did. What do you mean? Uh, you know, praising the church for this building program when there are poor people all around us and when this money could have gone to the benevolent fund. And I mean, he's just letting me have it right there in line for crying out loud. So I said to him, you know, uh, this is not the best time for us to have this conversation why don't we get together for breakfast? And I thought I would diffuse it with a little humor. And so I said to him, and you could buy. I thought that would be kind of funny, but he didn't think it was funny <laughs> at all. But he took me up on the deal, and we got together for breakfast. And I was ready to go with facts about the money and what we're using it and how we're not neglecting the benevolent needs of the people around us and how we're debt-free, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But he didn't even bring up that issue. And it just occurred to me the issue with him was not the issue. The issue was the avenue by which he could obligate me as the pastor of the church, a male authority figure, to give him attention. And as I got to know him, I just began to ask him questions about his background and so on. It seems that he was the son of a, of a dad, a good man, who uh, worked as vocation on the railroad. And oftentimes, when this man was a young boy, he, with his mom, would go to the train station. He would literally see his dad 
uh, leaving him behind. He would see the train going down the tracks, and he remembers what it feels like, felt like, to see that happen and be left behind. And it occurred to me in this particular church, because we had decision makers who um, were becoming increasingly um, younger, because I thought if that church is ever going to live, we better get younger people on some of these teams and committees, because old people uh, like me, we die sooner, generally speaking. And so I thought, oh my goodness, if we want to ensure the future of this place, we better infiltrate with some good, godly, younger people. And so that was happening, and this man, therefore, was not asked to be on the they called them committees then. He was not asked to be on the redecorating committee. And I think he actually felt again that the train was leaving the station and he was not on it. He was left behind. And so the issue was not the issue. The complaint was not based on fact and wasn't even the issue. This poor man didn't know he could just ask for time and attention and a good pastor would give it to him, he thought the only way to do it is to complain, and that obligates the pastor to respond. Well, it doesn't always work this way, but we became closest of friends and associates at that point. And the issue of the redecorating project really never, never came up again. Not only is that good news, but he actually did pay for my breakfast. So I was like... So anyway, I began to learn when you get these uh, irrational, out-of-context comments, criticism, when people ought to be cheerleaders instead of critics, it's usually because someone's pride has been slighted, someone doesn't feel like uh, he or she is getting the attention they're used to, maybe they feel like the train is leaving the station and they're not on board. So you see, oftentimes with criticism, the issue is not the issue. The issue here with Ephraim was not the issue. Uh, the underlying issue was we don't feel like you're acknowledging us, though we have played a prominent role in the history of Israel up until this point. After all, we're the largest and most prominent. Do you know who we are, Gideon, etc., etc.? Okay, that's the first test. How did he deal with it? How did Gideon respond? Let's see. Verse 2. He said to them, what have I done now in comparison with you? Is not the gleaning of the great grapes of Ephraim better than the vintage of Abiezer? Abiezer, the Abiezrites, that's Gideon's people. He is giving an amazingly gracious and gentle, non-defensive response. He's essentially saying to them, you feel cut off and of no value, but I think the contribution you made is even greater, perhaps, than that which my own tribe has made. And here's the contribution, verse 3. God has given the leaders of Midian, here are their names, Oreb and Zeb, or Zeb, into your hands. And what was I able to do in comparison with you? And then their anger toward him subsided when he said that. They needed attention, <laughs> pat on the back. He gave it to them. Their anger subsided. I wonder if Gideon knew Proverbs 15.1, a gentle answer 
turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Uh, Gideon knew he couldn't afford internal dissension here because the Midianites were not yet fully dealt with. He knew the enemy was outside and therefore he had to maintain unity inside because a divided congregation would not be fit to deal with the external challenges it faces. I think that's true of Sagemont Church. The challenges for lost souls, who the evil one, the prince of darkness, holds in his grasp. He's darkened them in their understanding. He's hardened their hearts. They're captive to a cruel taskmaster. And we are sent out as deliverers to free them with a gospel presentation. And we must not let anything admit it, especially those things that come from our own pride and jealousy to divide us here so that our message is compromised and so that we can't present a united front to the world who is sorely in need of seeing and the gospel take its effect in our lives and hearing it declared. So this is what Gideon does. He does extremely well, don't you agree, in handling his first test. But there's now a second one. Verse 4. Gideon and the 300 men who were with him, remember how God pared down their numbers from thousands to 300? Well, they came to the Jordan, Jordan River. They crossed over. They were weary, yet pursuing. You know, I, I thought to myself, that I feel that way. Do you? Weary, yet pursuing. And we're still going, but life is wearisome. Don't let me cause you to stumble. I think it's getting harder to live. It's getting harder to do ministry, I think. I, I don't know. There's just a lot of stuff going on out there, in here, in our lives. Uh, the course we are called upon to travel is wearisome. Okay, so what? As long as we keep pursuing. Weary yet pursuing. Well, and so here's what Gideon did. He said to the men of Sukkot, it's a little town not far from where he was, he said this, fair request, please give loaves of bread to the people who are following me. You know, the 300 soldiers who are with him. Why? They're weary. And I'm pursuing Zeba and Zalmunna, kings of Midian. Fair request. Here's the response. The leaders of Sukkot said, are the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna already in your hands that we should give bread to your army? Here's what these creeps say. They say, if we give bread to your men now, but you lose the battle, those people will come after us. We're not going to take a risk. So more important to them than showing love to their hungry, battle-weary brethren, uh, they want to protect themselves, and so they withhold the bread. What an insult to Gideon and his troops. But I think even more significantly, what an insult to God, who already guaranteed the victory. And so that's what they do. But then something else happens, verse 7. Gideon said, okay, when, not if, when the Lord has given these guys into my hand, 
I'll thrash your bodies with the thorns of the wilderness and with briars. So he went up from there to another place called Penuel. He spoke similarly to them. And the men of Penuel answered him just as the men of Sukkot did. And he spoke also to them saying, when I return safely, I'll tear down this tower. A tower was like a fortification that people hid out in thinking it would secure them from an opposing enemy. And Gideon said, I'm going to beat up on the guys from Sukkot and I'm going to do the same to you for denying your own brethren the bread that they need. Now, this is very interesting to me because the second test Gideon faced was handled by him in an entirely different way (laughs) than was the first test. Hang in there. The first response of Gideon was quite gentle. This one is quite assertive. He essentially says, you're dead. So verse 10, here's what happened. These two guys, Ziba and Zalmunna, and their armies, about 15,000 guys, uh, because 120,000 died, uh, Gideon went up to them by a certain path, and he attacked their camp when they didn't expect it. And these two guys fled. He pursued them. He captured them. He routed the whole army. And then Gideon, verse 13, he came back from the battle a certain way. He had just won. And he captured a young guy, a youth from one of these towns we just spoke about, Sukkot. He interrogated him. The young guy wrote down for him the princes, names of the princes of Sukkot, about 77 guys. And Gideon came to that place and he said, Ziba and Zalmunna, concerning whom you taunted me, saying, are their hands already in your hand that we should give bread to your men? Uh, Verse 16, and so he took the 77 elders of the city and thorns, just like he said, of the wilderness and briars, and he disciplined them. Then he tore down the tower of Penuel and he killed the men of the city. Is this the same Gideon? who responded to the first test the way we just saw that he did. Yeah, he is. Why? Because the mark of leadership is to be flexible. Sometimes you respond to people in a very gracious way to put out the fire. Other times you go toe-to-toe and you set bounds. And you don't let them to do things that are an insult to the duly appointed leader and to Almighty God who appointed the leader. And so you have to embrace the approach that sort of fits the crime. In the first case, it was a prideful response by the Ephraimites, and Gideon responded the way he did. In the second case, it's more like rebellion. It's more serious. It's withholding from your own brethren the very bread that they need in order to go on. Two different offenses warranting two different responses by leaders. If a leader doesn't have a bag of tricks, different arrows in his quiver to use according to what the situation requires, that leader is not very mature. You have to judge the situation and decide what to do. The leader who is always passive, gentle, looking the other way, Not good. The leader who always is ready to go to war with somebody and give them a piece of their mind, not good. You have to prayerfully determine what is the right course of action. There's the skill of leadership. You can read books on it. 
But there's also the art of leadership, and that's produced by the very Spirit of God. Pray that the next pastor of this church would be a balanced leader who has a sufficient array of techniques in leadership that fit the situation and that isn't locked in narrowly to one approach only. All right? Now there's more to come. Verse 18. So Gideon says to these two guys, Midianite leaders, uh, hey, what kind of men were they whom you killed at Tabor? Mount Tabor is an interesting mountain in Israel. It, look, it's very, it looks like a belly button. It looks like an Audi, an Audi. I mean, that's what it looks like. And uh, some event happened on Mount Tabor that the scriptures don't tell us about. We don't know. But Gideon interrogates Zeba and Zalmunna before he killed them. And he said, so what happened at Tabor? What kind of men did you kill? They said, they were like you. They resembled you. They looked like royalty, son of a king. That's what he does. Verse 19, he says, they were my brothers. Oops, did they say the wrong thing or what? They were his brothers. The reason they looked like him is genetically they were him. I mean, they were brothers. He said, they were the sons of my mother as the Lord lives. If only you had let them live, I wouldn't kill you. Now, according to Mosaic law, a family member was authorized to take the life of uh, one who was guilty of murdering one of your own. Why? Well, they didn't have a police force in those days. They, they didn't do that. So it was up to the family. I think if Gideon's brothers were killed by the, by the Midianites in battle, maybe he wouldn't have responded, as you'll see he did. But it looks like they killed his brothers innocently. And so here's what he does, verse 20. He said to Jether, his firstborn son. Jether's getting his firstborn son. He says, rise up and kill them. But he's a young kid. And he didn't want to do it. He's afraid. He's still a kid. He, Dad, I don't want to do it. I don't want to take out my sword and kill these guys. Uh, also, it would be a great disgrace in those days to fall at the hands either of a woman or a young kid. And so here's what happens. Verse 21, the, the two guys, Zeba and Zalmunna, said, well, rise up yourself and fall on us. They know they're going to die. They'd rather fall at the hands of the mighty warrior Gideon than his young, maybe teenage son. So Gideon got up and killed them, and he took their crescent ornaments, which were on their camels' necks. And the men of Israel said to Gideon, rule over us. That's what they said. Both you and your son and your son's son. In other words, Build a dynasty, King Gideon, because you have delivered us from the hand of Midian. Whoa, no. That's the very thing God said uh, they're going to fall into. They're going to take credit for things. I mean, he pared down their numbers from thousands to 300, and still these Israelites think Gideon is the hero. Oh, no, he's not. He's just a flawed vessel who in the hands of God could be mighty, but God gets the glory, not Gideon, but here they're giving Gideon the glory. They're attributing success to Gideon and not to Gideon's God. Now, this is test number three. He was asked to be king. Not only that, set up a dynasty. Your sons after you will be king over us, so on. This was a great temptation. It must have been for Gideon because he's popular now. He's a celebrity. That's a killer for most of us, I must tell you. Fame, popularity, 
is a killer. I'll tell you. You stand up on a thing like this and look down on people, it can go to your head for crying out loud. It's a huge temptation to think more of yourself than you is. And so Gideon, one of these people like me. Good night. They, you know, I'm winning a popularity contest. So here's what he says, verse 20. Here's how he responds to this third test. Gideon said to them, verse 23, I, I, I won't rule over you, nor shall my son rule over you. The Lord shall rule over you. Yay, Gideon! Wow! He, it seems, initially passed the test. The temptation to believe the clippings of your own greatness. He seemed to pass the temptation, but hang on. Verse 24, yet Gideon said to them, I, I won't be your king, but I would make this request, that each of you give me an earring from his spoil. They had lots of gold earrings. So Gideon is thinking, even though he wasn't going to be their king, you know, it would be nice to profit a little bit from this victory that the Lord has given me. This guy is a study in contrasts, and by the way, so is every leader. Therefore, you and I should respect leaders, but not worship leaders. Because leaders, even Gideon, great leaders, are pretty flawed people, just like you and me. The best of men is but a man at best, as someone has said. So Gideon's a study in contrast. On the one hand, he exalts God. And he refuses to usurp the Lord's place as sovereign victor. But on the other hand, he gives in to the temptation for wealth. So he turns down one temptation, but yields to another. Don't you see? He's a study in contrast. I know of no great human leader who isn't exactly the same. So they said to him, verse 25, okay, We'll do it. And so they spread out a garment, and every one of them threw an earring from the spoil, and the weight of the gold earrings was like a bunch, 1,700 shekels of gold and ornaments and pendants and all this kind of stuff. Here's what he did with it. He made it into an ephod. Remember what that is? It's like a vestment the priest would wear. No sleeves. You slip it over your neck, and the ephod had jewels on it, one for each of the 12 tribes of Israel. In some way, I don't know, uh, they would be illuminated when the priest would seek God's guidance and all the rest. And somehow God would give his direction to the people through the high priest, through the ephod, which only the high priest was supposed to wear. He being a descendant of the tribe of Levi, right? Gideon was a Benjamite, not a Levite. What's the deal with this ephod thing? Well, that's what he does. So Gideon, who had been an idol breaker, look what he's doing towards the end of his life. He's now becoming an idol maker. That's what he does. And so the people, uh, we're told, were drawn away from the tabernacle, which was at Shiloh. That was the re religious center. And instead, they went to a place called Ophrah, not Oprah, Ophrah. And there they went to worship at the ephod that Gideon probably put on. He probably put it on and wore it as if he was the high priest when he wished to inquire of the Lord. Folks, I mentioned earlier on the theme of Judges is this. It's captured in the very last verse 
of the book, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes, and see we, here we see it played out again. Gideon is doing what was right in his own eyes. Folks, I don't care how great a leader is. That leader is still flawed and prone to various temptations. That leader is still prone to do what he thinks is right in his own eyes and not seek and submit to counsel. And that's what this dude is doing right now. He's doing what he thought was right in his own eyes. And so I think Gideon did a whole lot better in times of adversity than in times of prosperity. And I think in this, Gideon is no different than you or I. And that's why a loving God, God allows adversity into our life. Prosperity just gets us moving away from God oftentimes. Adversity and the pain thereof obligates us to remember who we are and to cling to him for blessing. We need it, folks. As painful as it is, lest our flesh rule over us as it seems to be with Gideon. So verse 28, Midian was subdued before the sons of Israel. They didn't lift up their heads anymore. The land was undisturbed for 40 years in the days of Gideon. Then Jerubbaal, that's another name for Gideon, uh, he lived in his own house. He's kind of retired now. And so Gideon had, listen to this, 70 sons, holy moly, uh, they were his direct descendants, direct descendants. Now, how did he pull that off? Well, he had many wives. That's what it says right there. He had many wives. Could I tell you something? That is not God's will. No. His will is found in the first book of the Bible. One man, irreversibly bound to one woman, and the two becoming one flesh. Seventy wives. I suppose if 69 of them had a headache one night, at least the 70th would be available to them. I don't know what possessed this guy. No wonder he was going crazy at the end. Holy Toledo. Listen here. He became a celebrity in Israel, and though he declined kingship, he didn't mind living like a king. So he has all this women. Uh, because of his celebrity, there were temptations which came his way, and he allowed his celebrity success to go to his head. You see, how could God use a man like this? And I say, who else does he have? You show me. Who else is better than Gideon? We're all, this, we're all a study in contrasts. <laughs> it's a result of the fact that we have two natures, flesh and spirit, and sometimes we play into the flesh, and at other times we play into the spirit, and thank God one day there won't be that battle of flesh versus spirit. Sin will be removed, but until then, the best of us is just like Gideon. But I guess 70 women weren't enough, so verse 31, his concubine who was in Shechem, also bore him a son, for crying out loud. He's got to have a slave woman, kind of, a, well, for sexual purposes, 70 women, wives, not enough. This woman is not only exploited sexually, she doesn't even get the rights of being married to him. Well, she bears a son, and here's his name. It'll become quite significant next time we get together. Abimelech. It means son of the king. Interesting name Gideon chose for his son. No, no, I will not be your king, but I'll name my son son of the king, which means everywhere Abimelech went, 
everyone would see, oh, your son of the king Gideon. Anyway, that's what he did. So verse 32, Gideon died, ripe old age, and he was buried and all the rest. And it came about, as soon as he was dead, the sons of Israel again played the harlot with the Baals, and they made the false god their god. And thus the sons of Israel, they didn't remember the Lord their God. Isn't that interesting? They don't remember the one who had delivered them from the hands of all their enemies on every side, nor did they show kindness to the household of Jerubbaal, that is Gideon, in accord with all the good he had done to Israel. He had done much good to Israel, but he finished very poorly and lost the people's respect. A haunting possibility. If you're a Christian, it's not just running the race. It's finishing the race that we ought to be after. I think the words of Paul are quite instructive here. 2 Timothy 4, 7. Remember when Paul said, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I've kept the faith. One of my big interests now at this age of mine uh, is to finish well. I don't want to be disqualified. I don't want to jeopardize a legacy. I don't want to bring shame upon my family, my church, my wife. But I could because I'm no different than Gideon, you see. I'm nervous. The spirit is very willing. I know argument with God's spirit, but my flesh is pretty weak. I have a great desire, therefore, to finish well, honorably. That's all. I don't want to cross the race um, crawling over the finish line. I want to run. I want to finish. And you do too. Therefore, uh, I would like to ask you to bow your head. This is just for private prayer. I'm going to do the same thing. I just want to pray, oh God, let me be like Paul. Fight the good fight. It's not against one another, by the way. It's the fight against darkness. Finish the course. Keep the faith. I don't want to compromise. I don't want to waver. I'm not looking for new theologies. I think what Scripture has told us and what we have apprehended over the centuries uh, doesn't need to be toyed with nor changed. I don't want to give in to the temptations of the day. I could, once again. God's Spirit is in me is willing, but my flesh is weak, and so is yours. Let's just pray. Oh, God, here's my heart's desire to so finish the race that when I see you face to face, and I shall, you will be able to look me in the eye and say, well done, good and faithful servant. Isn't that better than anything the world has to offer? Would you take a minute or two? Transact that business with the Lord. I will too up here and then we'll close. We can't hear each other, Lord, but you do. 
I think, loud, silent petitions for you to so strengthen us and enable us to finish well. Running the race is one thing. Finishing it, I think. Finishing it well is even more important. We need help for it. We're surely no better than Gideon or anybody else who hasn't finished so well. Put in us a good sanctified fear of being disqualified from the race. All it takes is one, two very poor decisions. Oh, God, let it be the case that when we stand before you, we receive the greatest reward imaginable, and that is your praise, worthy words, good job, good and faithful servant. It occurs to me, Lord, this is something we can help one another with. So if we're prone out of jealousy and pride to tear each other down, help us to give it up and instead look about to the one we can encourage to stay in the race, run the race, so as to finish the race. It would be wonderful if everyone here at the Sagemont family would Keep the faith, fight the good fight, finish the course. We could help each other doing that. I think that is another premier purpose of a church family. We are that way. Help us to be that way. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.